Sons of the Hunt podcast, season two, episode 13. 13 is lucky 13. We have a, a guest I've been looking forward to, um, Molly Giles. Yes. Like a J. Okay. <laughs> like a J, but it's a G. You can uh, probably get that a lot. Yeah, yeah I do. Uh, state biologist, wildlife research biologist um, with the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Um, I had the pleasure of going banding, tagging along a couple weeks ago. A lot of fun. I learned a lot, and uh, I'm still a little mad at you that you didn't take me with you. Yeah, that was kind of a spur of the moment thing too. (laughs) I was just like, uh, spur of the moment does not exist in my world anymore, man. So it's cool. (laughs) So uh, yeah, it was quite the experience, and uh, I thought it would be good to have you on the podcast and talk about that exactly. You know why we're banding and what we're taking from that research and what we're doing with it afterwards. So thank you for having me. No, it's our Thanks pleasure. Thanks for coming Th- out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Taking the ride up and coming to see us. So you went to school. You have your master's in yes. just uh, wildlife biology? Wildlife and fisheries biology. Okay. Um, where'd you go? Uh, I went to Cal U of PA for my undergrad mm-hmm. in the same uh, degree. Fish- it was fisheries and wildlife biology there. And then uh, for my master's, I went to Clemson in South Carolina. Oh, Nice. What got you into what, what? Where was that that moment? You're like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to work with wildlife as opposed to whatever other you know. Some kids are like, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a yeah. cop and end up as an accountant. Like, when was that? Uh... Uh, I don't know. I just always knew. I guess when I was younger that I always liked wildlife and the outdoors. Um, I just always knew that I wanted to have a job where you were outside. Right, right. I want to like sit at a desk all day. So that's kind of where it came from. And then I guess when I was about that age when you start looking for, you know, colleges to go to or whatever, I looked at things like, um, oh, like environmental science and parks and rec and stuff like that. But I'd always been more interested in biology, like the biological side of things. That's kind of how I found uh, wildlife biology and just tried to find. (laughs) Well, Um, that's my fault. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just tried to find schools, you know, in Pennsylvania that had, offered that degree and uh i'm originally from the southwest part of the state so okay um so cal u was kind of the closest one so that's how i ended up there and then clemson i ended up there because i um they had posted the the project that i worked on which was uh, a project on migrant canada geese um and i i tend to like geese more than ducks they're kind of my thing yeah um but they posted that project and i thought it was really interesting and i applied for it and got it i don't Really like um, hot weather, so the South wasn't wasn't yeah, my with first choice. Yeah. As I am far with as you on that. School, but <laughs> that's kind of where I ended up. So good deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anyone that lives in Pennsylvania by choice, usually not a fan <laughs> of the super hot weather. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the project that you chose, did you say that uh, the n- name of the project? Did I miss it? No, I did. Yeah. So we were looking at um, so the Game Commission in South Carolina, South Carolina uh, DNR. They have, so they have a weird population of migrant Canada geese down there. 
it's like a um, a remnant migrant population. So years ago, we had migrant geese that would winter down into Florida. Um, <clears throat> over the years, they're inching their way further uh, north, so they don't winter as far south anymore. So this population in South Carolina is pretty much um, the southernmost wintering migrants you're going to find in the flyway, in the Atlantic flyway. Um, so they're wondering, um, they kind of hang out on this one particular refuge, it's called Santee National Wildlife Refuge. Um, so they're wondering, um, for years they had had this area around the refuge where there was no goose hunting at all. Um, but they started to have numbers of resident geese increasing in, in neighboring areas and goose hunters wanted to be able to harvest resident birds, but they wouldn't allow it because they didn't know how these two groups of geese uh, sort of mixed together. Sure. So they wanted someone to do research on the birds and figure out, you know, when these migrants are here, do they mix with these resident birds? Do the residents come on the refuge? Do the migrants leave the refuge? Where do they hang out all winter? Um, you know, what habitat are they using and things like that. So that's one of the things we were trying to figure out through radio and satellite telemetry. Um, it turns out that, no, the two don't hang out together at all during the wintering really? period. The residents are there um, pretty much like into the fall, and then they disperse out onto the lake, and they don't really hang out on the refuge at all. And then the migrants come in, and they pretty much just stay right on the refuge. It was like the most boring telemetry ever. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, this pond in the morning, come out of there, and then feed in the same field, go back to the pond, back forth, back forth all day long. That's all they did. So there was no mixing of the two flocks. Um, and then the other thing we wanted to find out was when those migrants leave, what uh, breeding population are they part of? Uh, what breeding ground do they go to? Um, Everyone had totally expected that those would be Southern James Bay geese. Um, and they may have actually been there. We just didn't happen to put transmitters on any of those. But all the ones we transmitted went to the Atlantic Population Breeding Grounds. So that was kind of an interesting twist in the project. Um, I think there are still James Bay geese there, but we just didn't get any. Okay. Um, and it's such a small number of birds that, you know, and we had some difficulty actually, like rocket netting them too so we kind of took whatever we could get <laughs> that's a pretty cool process i've seen so, that the rocket yeah, netting yeah uh well i'm gonna have you explain that in a minute but i have <laughs> my, my, que my question is how, why would they not kind of intermingle is there a reason why like the migrant birds would not kind of intermingle with the the resident birds or is that just something that's uh, kind of common? i don't know if we you know if anyone really found that out um residents do tend to um, well, resident birds are ones that stay pretty much in one local area. Okay. Um, so they don't make like a big, large-scale migration, but gotcha. they do tend to have areas where they'll go to, you know, during the breeding, like the nesting season or uh, the molt or um, the wintering uh, period. So they may have just gone to an area they always like to winter in. It's okay. a big, a big lake, so they have a lot of places to go. Um, they may have just liked those areas better, or maybe they don't like the competition with the migrants. It's, that makes sense. It's, it's hard, it's like, hard you to know, say. I don't think anyone ever really, look, you know, like looked into that particular question. But. Like the local bar versus the Hard Rock Cafe. <laughs> you know? Right, right. <laughs> the locals hang out at yeah. the local bars and uh, the tourists go to the Hard Rock. Yeah, like, you know, here, you know, we see geese in certain places this time of year and then they all kind of disappear. Right. Come winter, usually it's because of ice cover or something. Mm -hmm, sure. They have to go to the river or something like that. But down there, they may or may not have ice. So it's hard to say why they wouldn't split up but they did we put um uh neck collars on 
the residents. So we did like a similar banding like we did in June here. We did a banding like that to catch residents during the summer when we knew only residents were there. We put neck collars on okay. them so they'd be easily identifiable mixed into a flock of migrants. And after about, I think, October, maybe November, no more neck collar birds hanging out on the refuge. How about that? So... That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's one thing that uh, is, is the, the migrating birds, whether it be the ducks, the geese, the, and we were just kind of talking about the doves a few minutes ago. It's interesting how they just have that pattern they stick to. Yep. It's kind of a, yep. a really interesting uh, kind of how they react to instinct, really, yeah. uh, on how they do that. They do some weird things, and it's you know, we don't really know like how or why they know these things, like mm-hmm. how they know the breeding ground is there. Or right. Yeah, yeah it's pretty it's, incredible. It's weird. <laughs> Rocket netting. Explain yeah. what rocket netting is. Cause I don't know, maybe some people might know where that is, but uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, so um, they're these little, oh, I don't even know how to describe them. They're not a rocket like you're thinking, right, like right, a right. firework or anything. Um, but it's a, a little metal sort of canister-shaped rocket. Uh, twist apart, and you put a, a charge inside of it that you hook up. You run it through that little uh, tube out the back, and then you hook it up... Uh, you roll a big spool of wire out, mm-hmm. maybe to your blind or wherever you're going to sit to like watch the net. So you have a little, uh, you have a set of buttons in your hand to actually set the net off. So you set these rockets out. Usually it's like uh, four of them in a row. You space them out in a line, um, and they're attached to a net. So when they go off, they're going to fly up in the air, make like an arc, and the net is going to follow behind them and drop onto whatever bird or animal you're trying to catch. Um, so you sit in a blind or something usually with that cable running from your net to wherever you're sitting. And then when, in this case, when the geese would get onto the bait, you'd put bait out in front of the net. Mm-hmm. Um, although the geese in South Carolina that I was talking about were really, uh, they were freaked out by that net. So we did, we had to do a lot of things to get them to even come close. We had to cover it with a little bit of straw or something, uh, kind of hide it. We had to put decoys out that looked like they were like feeding on the bait oh, right. and everything. So, um, but you get the birds into the bait and then once um, they're in there feeding on it and they're just all positioned right, you hit the button, the net goes out, goes over them, and then it co- it uh, covers them, and then you run out there and it's get them neat. All it's out, like yeah, it's kind of like this aggressive tactic. Not aggressive, <laughs> but it's like it's something you would not see coming. You know, yeah. the first yeah. time I saw it, I didn't know what was going on, and I was watching a video and all these. I think it was geese. They're all yeah. kind of in the field. And all of a sudden, these rockets go off with this giant net. Yep. Yeah. It's like, holy smokes, that was really cool. They do it with turkeys too, right? Yeah. yeah most of this, the game commission has used them mostly for turkeys. That's what it was. I apologize. I not geese, it was the, turkeys. You're right. Back in the early 2000s, we did our, we did our um, swan study. We caught swans with rocket nets. Um, so it's used for birds that like you can't get them to go in a trap. Like geese right. and mm-hmm. swans and turkeys are not going to go... They're not going to go near a trap. Right, right, right. So that's got a little bit of excitement. It's got to be fun hitting that button. (laughs) It it is. (laughs) But it's also very, um, it makes you very nervous. Like you need everything to just be perfect. Every bird has to be like in just the right spot. Um, so it's a little nerve wracking too. But. I can imagine. It sounds, it sounds a little bit like a practice that we are into quite a bit, uh, in, in, in the hunting world. I mean, yeah. everything's gotta be just right. Yep. And it has to line up just, just so. And, yeah. uh, otherwise you, you have a chance of blowing it. Yep. Yeah. But. And I know when we, we did a lot of rocket netting when I worked in Virginia too, um, for ducks actually. And ducks will go in a trap, but, um, this was for like, we wanted to get like bigger catches. Um, so, and that's a whole different 
a whole different experience because now you're dealing with like the tide down there. So if you're rocket netting birds like on a mud flat or something, you oh wow, yeah, hurry up and get them out before the tide comes in. So there's a lot of a lot of factors to consider yeah. there. <laughs> there's so many similarities between doing like a study like you're doing and and actually hunting. Yeah. I mean, I guess technically you are hunting. You're just not. You gotta know, you know, D- different the animal. Result. You gotta know the, <laughs> yeah. the environment around it, yep. everything. So, yeah. uh, we were talking a little bit before. You you do not hunt. No, I don't. You'd probably be a good hunter though. I mean, <laughs> just from the, that that day banding, you know, we were bouncing from spot to spot, and you kind of had everything already scouted out. Oh yeah, that scouting process. That's like uh, like we band the last week of June. It's the yeah. same week every year. Uh, so that whole month of June leading up to that, I'm out scouting every almost every day. See, that's that's awesome. So mm-hmm. I wish somebody would pay me to do that. Looking for flocks, <laughs> um, you know, finding landowners that will let me work in their yard or whatever. Yeah. Um, just trying to get everything set up and um, looking at each site, like trying to play out in my head, like how it's going to go when we actually get everyone in there and try to get them around the birds and whatever. So, yeah. yeah. It's a very similar, like setting up <laughs> a tree stand. Yeah. yeah, yeah, trying to figure everything out, scouting out, see, like you just said, imagining how things are going to play out, yeah. and trying to figure out how you can use the the the, the land and the uh, the landmarks to your advantage a little mm-hmm. bit. So it's pretty cool, pretty cool process. Yeah, yeah, and then just seeing the the whole the whole technique behind it. I guess we should probably talk a little bit more about <laughs> the banding. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. We have, we have a, a litany of questions. That's okay. So so I guess to begin with. Um, you're just you're. It's just a metal band doesn't hurt the geese. No, and I, it's aluminum, uh, so it's a very light metal. Mm-hmm. That's what we're going for with banding with banding of any bird. Um, birds are well, they're built for flight, so everything about them is light. So you don't want to put lots of weight on them, mm, even right. with uh, any animal. When you're putting a transmitter on it, let's yeah. say or whatever, um, you know that transmitter has to be only a certain a small percentage of that animal or bird's uh, weight. You don't want right. them carrying around lots of weight. Birds have like hollow bones. Mm-hmm. Everything is light about them. So that's why we use the aluminum. It's the lightest metal. So we're not adding any weight and it just, it goes on like, you know, a bracelet would go on. It can right. move up and down the leg. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not tight or anything. So it's similar to you yeah, wearing like a bracelet. Valuable material doesn't rust. That's a pretty good uh, option. They do. Do they really? <laughs> yeah. And when you get like some older ones, they get... Yeah. Pretty rusty or scratched oh, really? up. I wouldn't have They've thought been that on they would for a while. Rusted. Yeah. Occasionally we'll replace if we get one that looks really bad and mm-hmm. you can't read it anymore, we'll replace it with a new one. What's the handy. what's the oldest one you've ever found? Um I know like so there's that actual file that we have of uh, that shows like every species that's banded and what the oldest band return ever was. Yeah. For geese, I think like for Canada geese, I think it's thirty two. Whoa. They're two years old. I th- think so or oh 29 or something Holy like that. Holy smokes. Um, I never would have guessed. I think the oldest mallard was like 27. Whoa. Um so and, and that's like not life. that's not common like oh, of course, <laughs> of course. I mean <laughs> like even if it like was a, on the um, long end of the scale I would have said 7 or 8. Yeah, yeah. like you if know, it was but, like a bird that was like raised in captivity or something you might see that. Mm-hmm. Um but that's not common at all for Right, right. That's still like pretty wild cool. birds. That's yeah. a lot older than I didn't think they would be able to live that long. Yeah, it's even in captivity. I think it is in the 20s or 30s though. How about that? Yeah, and if you really want to have your mind blown, the oldest bird like in the world, I think, is a albatross that is like seventy something, no sixty or seventy wow. something. I think. You just don't <laughs> picture birds living that long. No, yeah. neither do I. I think I want to say it is. I can. Unless you're a parrot owner, those yeah. damn things live forever, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not common at all, though, for a wild bird. Right, like so. a, like an old turkey is like four or five. Yeah. Maybe. 
Yeah, about the um, same as a deer. I know. Um, so last during last year's banding, uh, so twenty eighteen banding, um, we had I want to say two or three birds um, that we banded at a state park. That when we looked at the band returns, they came back. They were at least thirteen years old. Wow, man. Um, and then this year, I actually wrote some down for you guys. Um, for this year's banding, because I just got the banding report for goose banding back from Harrisburg, like, last week. Um, we had a goose in Washington County that was originally banded in 2004, so that makes it 16. Wow. Uh, we had two geese in Beaver County that were at least 14, another two that were 11, and then in our region up here in the Northeast, we had three in Northumberland County and one in Columbia County that were nine and ten years old. Wow. Three were, I think three were ten at least, and one was nine. So so, so when somebody shoots a, a goose with a band, <clears throat> there's a number on it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so basically each goose is assigned its own number? Yes. So is there any, I, see I'm not much of a waterfall hunter. When somebody kills a goose with a band, you're supposed to call it in? So um, if you look at a, look at the band, so the big, the number of that, like, it's essentially like a social security number for mm-hmm. that goose. It's going to be with it for the rest of its life, for the rest of the time that band is on. So the mm-hmm. number is on there, real big, straight across the middle of the band. And then at the top, well, it used to say, call the bird banding lab, and it would have a phone number. And then at the bottom, it would say, uh, reportband.gov. So okay. you could do, you could call it in, or you could report it on their website. Uh, just... Probably in, I think it was this winter, when we did our winter banding in, uh, like, January through March. That was the first, uh, we rolled out new bands that only have the website, the web address on them. So now that's the only way to report your bird now. There's no more calling in. Well, I mean, who doesn't um, have internet access anymore? Yeah, and it I is mean, much easier to report them <clears throat> online. I've, you know, I do it all the time when I catch birds mm-hmm. and already banded, so it's right. yeah. pretty easy, so... You yeah. can get internet access in your duck blind anymore, so. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I have done that. Like, I've caught a bird in the field and then immediately just got on my phone and, right. like, put it all in. And it's like holding the bird. You, does it tell you right then how old the bird is? So, you'll get, um, like, as soon as you hit submit, like, I would say within a couple minutes, you'll get, like, an email back that okay. will give you, like, some rough info about that bird. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe within, like, a day or two, if you request it, you'll get the actual, like, certificate. Um, from the banding lab, they email it to you. That will okay. have all the info on it. So that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know. You that. don't have to get it. Like they used to mail right. it, mail it to you or whatever. But right. um, but you can request it and then they'll email it to you. Now. That's pretty cool. So, so why do you? What, what when aside from like the migration and stuff like that? What other reasons do you have for like banding a bird and tracking it and stuff like that? Um, so that's kind of the first one that people usually think of is m- migration or mm-hmm. movements of some sort, and that is true. Like we do use that. Uh, we do use bands to look at dispersal or migration or whatever. Um, you can look at things like age. Um, uh, the biggest thing, though, that like waterfowl managers get from bird bands is we use those band returns to help us estimate things like harvest rates, survival rates um, within the population. And those are the things we use to like make hunting seasons, set hunting regulations for the following year. So... They're actually really, band returns are a really important part of, yeah. of waterfowl management. It's like sending your tags and when you, <laughs> when you, you know, have a successful yeah. hunt, a lot of yep. people do that. Report they tag card. their animal and they just never do yeah. anything with it. And it's like, there's a reason they're there. Yep. You know what I mean? So it's sure. real important to, to kind of follow up on that. It's, it's kind of part of the program. 
So so basically from banding, you're getting several different points of data. Yeah. So and then so once you have the the data, can you kind of explain the process behind w- where that goes? Okay. Like once it's out of out of your hands, do you have to report that somewhere, or do you have to compile it or present um, it? Or? So so I'm a regional biologist. So the game commission has like regional biologists and then like bureau biologists that are in Harrisburg. So in Harrisburg, those are like your state biologists, like the bear biologists, deer, elk. We have a waterfowl biologist. Well, we don't actually have one right now. They're okay. in the process of hiring one. So, um, so when I do my banding, I send all of my data to the waterfowl biologist, the state waterfowl biologist. And then he or she, whoever it's going to be, compiles that stuff um, and keeps all the records for the state. But also bir- bird banding is through the bird banding lab. It's through the USGS. They're the ones who keep all that data. So ultimately, our state biologist sends all of that data to the bird banding lab, and they have the whole database of like every bird ever banded. Um, so then if someone would harvest the bird or whatever, um, they would <clears throat> report it to the banding lab. The banding lab would look through the records, and they would get that data to us let us know that one of our birds had been harvested or okay or reported or gotcha. whatever. So, so then from there, they're pretty much taking your your findings and what you report, and they're going to put it into regulation or, or in some way or another. It's yeah, the Fish to, and Wildlife Service is the they're the agency responsible for um, sort of coming up with that the framework of regulations. I, guess. I just feel like a lot of people don't understand how how that actually works. Like people. The whole process, like yeah. how from the data goes from data right. to hunting season right. regulation. Yeah. Well, I can kind of go through the whole process. It's <laughs> going to take a while, but... <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. I okay, mean, so we let, me, let me think about the best way to do this. Um, so let's start with surveys. Um, so I'm trying to think of the best way to do this. All right, so... Waterfowl management happens uh, through something called adaptive harvest management, okay. AHM. So AHM works, uh, how it works is it's a cycle every year. So we first do a bunch of surveys and banding, and we gather all the data, um, not just on, on the birds but on the habitat too. Then we compile all that data, look at it, see whatever what the populations look like, what the habitat looks like for the year. Um, and then... All of, and then we actually, then we have the hunting season. Hunting season comes in, and we get data about the actual harvest: number of birds harvested, where, um, ages and sexes of birds harvested, species, stuff like that. So we get all of that data uh, through different um, through HIP. When you buy your license, mm-hmm. you're part of HIP, um, the Harvest Information Program. So they have all your information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the feds use that and randomly select hunters to um, participate in different surveys. So one of the surveys is um, sort of call it like the hunter journal. So you may be asked to basically keep track of everything that happened during your hunting season. Where did you hunt? Like what states or whatever? Um, what birds did you harvest? Were they, what species were they? What sex were they? Mm-hmm. Um, so you keep track of all all the things that you've taken during the hunting season. The other group of hunters that get selected are the ones that participate in the, the parts collection survey. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but uh, that section of hunters is sent uh, envelopes. And every duck that they shoot, they're asked to take one wing off, 
put it in the envelope, and every goose they're asked to cut um, the the tail the tail fan, pull the tail fan out, okay. and then they cut the first three primary feathers. So on, if you're looking at a wing, it would mm-hmm. be the, like the top three. Right. Cut the tips of those off. So from the wings uh, on the ducks, and then the tail fan and feathers on the geese, we can tell uh, age and sex of the birds. Oh, cool. So that's how we get all the age and sex data for the harvest. Right. And I think, um, like, so at the end of the hunting season, all of these parts go into the Fish and Wildlife Service um, in each flyway. So for our flyway, they all go to Patuxent in Maryland, Patuxent National Wildlife Refuge. And then all these biologists go there. Um, sometimes, like, I've gone the last two years. It's called a wing bee, like a spelling bee. It's called okay. a wing bee. We basically sit in this tiny room <laughs> um, for, it takes a whole week, and we go through all these parts. We age and sex and speciate all these parts, um, and that's what they use to tell what happened that year in, in the harvest. Um, and I think, like, nationwide, there's, like, I think they go through, like, 90,000 duck wings and, like, 20,000 wow. goose tail fans and stuff. Um, no wonder it takes a week. Labor, so, labor so now we have, yeah, so now we have the data from... Uh, spring and summer surveys, banding, things like that. Now we have the harvest data. So now we can start looking at how that year went and making decisions about how we want harvest next year to go. So um, we take all that data, we put it together, we look at populations, we look at harvest. Then they come up with, uh, the feds come up with uh, the framework of of this for the season, for the year. Um, So that's usually... The wing bee is usually the last uh, week of January, so I think by shortly after that, the feds will get their framework out, and then the states have to, they can do um, whatever they want within that framework. They can't exceed it or anything. If they want to make a season shorter than what the feds recommend or whatever, fine. They just can't exceed that. So then the states would kind of start setting up what they want their regulations to be uh, for that state. And then I think, so by March, we have the, um, the Pennsylvania Waterfowl Symposium. So <clears throat> that's where hunters can come and uh, tell us or give us comments about what they think se- seasons or bag limits should be or whatever. So they ha- there's a public comment period yeah. um, for hunters to tell us what they think. How does that usually go? Pretty well. Yeah? Yeah. The, the Northeast region of the Game Commission hosted it for like the first time in ages, I think, this year. So we... We try to move it around the state. Like usually, we do one at Pima Tuning and one at Middle Creek. We go back and forth to mm-hmm. try to get, um, you know, if hunters from each of those parts of the state want to come, we give them the chance to come. You can also uh, submit comments um, via email and stuff too if you can't come to the meeting. Um, so, but we give the chance to uh, to the hunters to comment, and then once we take all their comments under consideration, then we'll set our uh, what we are going to have is our framework of regulations for that upcoming hunting season. Gotcha. And then we go through the whole cycle over again every year. Yeah. So it's adaptive harvest management in that we adapt it each year depending on what population right. numbers are like, habitat, what the harvest was like, stuff like that. So that's kind of the... So that's part of why we felt those, whenever you buy your hunting license, if you wanted to buy the migratory stamp, there's that little card, like how many geese did yeah. you kill? How many yeah. dove did you shoot? Like yeah. That kind of thing. Uh, did you ever buy a, a migratory stamp? It's yeah. pretty neat. They give you a little card. And they used to. I haven't bought a, a migratory stamp in probably about three or four years, okay. maybe even a little and less And it's all that, geared but. towards, like they ask you, if you're a waterfowl hunter, they're mm-hmm. going to ask you the waterfowl questions. Right. If you're a dove hunter, they're going to ask you dove questions. Right. I think it's all done on the computer now. Am I right? 
Mm, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Because it used to be a little card you would fill out and then okay. they'd kind of hand it in. Now I think they do it on the computer actually when you're buying it yeah. at the store, yep. uh, which is kind of a cool. Yeah. It's about time. It only took Pennsylvania, <laughs> what? And, uh, you know, 30 years to catch up to everybody <laughs> <Yeah>. else. <laughs> That's kind of how it goes, unfortunately. But. but what a long, labor intensive, never ending process, huh? Yeah. Pretty much. It's the kind of thing I guess you kind of have to love doing. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's boring as anything. That's like my job. I mean, you'll never be like, out of work. Yeah. That's it. Much. There's always something so, to do. Yeah. And I guess the other part, um, as far as the regulations, um, so I'm trying to think. I think I actually have notes on it here. So we kind of changed the way that the regulations work, too. So um, I think it, so prior to 2000, uh, our like set of regulations was based on the the populations of birds in the prairies because that's our major like breeding area for North America. So we were basing that framework, whether it was more conservative or liberal or whatever, we were basing that on how populations were doing out in the prairies, which didn't really make much sense. So then from, let's see, from 2000 to 2018 for uh, the for Pennsylvania and the Atlantic Flyway, we were, we were basing uh, our frameworks on the status of eastern mallards. And I'm sure, as you guys know, eastern mallards are not doing very well. So mm-hmm. it doesn't really make much sense to base our frameworks, um, our regulations on mallards. So we changed, um, we changed that again. So now how we figure out what seasons should, seasons should be and stuff is we... Uh, we have an overall package that's based on four species that are um, that represent all of the the breeding requirements, the important breeding and harvest areas in uh, in the flyway and in the state. So those are wood ducks, uh, green winged teal, ringnecks, and uh, goldeneye. So those are the four like representative species for regulations now. Oh, very cool. Um, and so, and then we also kind of change the process um, that the everything works, like I was saying, how we go through that process that builds up to the Waterfowl Symposium. So now we do, um, it used to be sort of like a two-step process where we would set the frameworks for the early seasons and then there'd be a sort of a gap and then we'd set them for the late seasons and that really wasn't working. Um, that's probably why you would notice when you used to get your hunter digest the waterfowl regs would never be in it right that's because separate, we still yeah. had to set those regs so now we kind of streamline that process it's all like one step now so um the the flyway councils meet they decide early and late season um and that's usually right after the the wing bee ends when we have the harvest data and they set everything and then the states have to have their stuff in uh their regulations in by april so that's usually gives plenty of time for public comment and also to get the regs in like the, the hunting digest and everything. So they're easy for people to find. Good deal. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to take in there. Yeah, yeah. It, there is, but <laughs> yeah. this is stuff and this that, is like, uh, this is not common knowledge When you really stuff. start talking about regs and like all the models and stuff behind, like, you know, we're talking about, uh, these models we base everything on. I mean, they're, they're nothing that I've ever done. And like, yeah. if I've ever gone to a flyway meeting or anything like that, where they discuss them, it's like, so yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very complicated. Um, I, I think that people just don't realize that there's so much behind it. Yeah. You know, it's not just somebody sitting somewhere making up, you know, okay, you could kill this many geese this year, yeah. you know, 
it's just it's a mind-blowing when you look at like the equation like if you actually got out the adaptive harvest management like report and looked at like the equations like (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's nothing that that we do it's all like the feds do it or whatever yeah um but yeah it's pretty complicated so (laughs) more than you would think i guess huh yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's intense Yeah, I'd like to get into talk a little bit about the mallards, <clears throat> but we okay. might we might oh well, you want to do that on the second half or that might we might get into yeah a little we bit on we that. could we do need that to talk about geese a little more because we yeah. can sidetrack yeah. there <laughs> absolutely yeah how are I we mean, looking on time where are we at we're at thirty one minutes we keep that's going. not bad yeah because I, I don't I don't have a timer anymore because I don't record on mine anymore oh so. you can look at the clock <laughs> I'm gonna have to do that yeah. and put a little timer down so we don't because sometimes we get really long winded yeah. before you know we're like oh we're like forty five fifty <laughs> minutes in when so. that's okay. Yeah, let's talk about some geese. I, I'm a big goose fan. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think the next question I, ha- I had uh, about geese. We we pretty much almost touched on all of them. But what I, what I wanted to do was talk about the actual, uh, like, the process that, I don't know, that, that I guess you're aiming for. It's like the technique of, because when I filmed it, I had the, the drone there. Yeah. And I kind of saw it's basically you want to try to, like, flock them all up yeah right so then from there you're just surrounding them i mean is there yeah, like a so standard procedure for there that there should or? be um so we always ban the same for pennsylvania the same two weeks of the year so the third week of june we ban the southern half of the state and then we do the northern half in the fourth week of june and that's all based um on the molt so that's the two weeks when for this latitude we should have the most birds molting and flightless um, so for other parts of the country or whatever, their timing's a little bit different. Like when they band on the breeding grounds up in Canada, mm. they're not going to be banding there till like August because they're further north, different latitude. It's all based on amount of daylight and stuff, day length and stuff right. like that. So we always band those same two weeks every year. Okay. Um, and like I said, I, I drive around and look for these sites we're going to use. Um, and then when we get to a site... Uh, hopefully all the birds are flightless. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they can fly just enough to get away from us or, you know, get just high enough. Um, but if we get there and they're on the water, we'll send kayaks out and we'll just sort of herd them towards whatever yard or wherever we're going to ban them. Um, and then once we get them up on the shore, we usually have, uh, we have these panels, which are just a a metal frame with uh, netting stretched around them. So we'll have uh, those panels there to surround them with and a bunch of people to surround them with. And we just sort of go really slow and and close them into those panels. Okay. So. And then from there, I I saw it's kind of like you get somebody inside there. (laughs) Yeah, a wrangler usually. Put someone in there. And and depending on which region you're banding, and everybody does it differently. But up here we put, usually we put like... um, uh, college kids or like high school kids that come with us that, yeah. you know, like they're trying to get experience handling birds or just learning about wildlife management or whatever. We'll usually throw them in there and they will grab the birds and hand the birds out to what we call the agers and sexers. So the people who are determining the age and the sex of the birds. Um, age is, it's not like we're determining like the exact year, you know, they sure, were born. Sure. we're just looking at whether they're a hatch year bird. So a bird that was born this year or an after hatch year, so an adult. Um, and the way that you tell that is just by looking at um, uh, the juvenile birds, the hatch year ones will still have like some down, usually on their head and stuff. Sometimes you even have goslings that are real, real tiny. I mean, it's totally noticeable. They're still completely covered sure. in down. As mm-hmm. you get 
uh, older birds, though, ones that may have been born earlier, um, you're looking for feathers on the head and the neck that still uh, have down coming out of them. So um, we usually just separate them. We'll put the goslings in a separate pen just to keep them safe um, from getting, like, trampled or anything like that. Right. I um, remember that. And then uh, the bands are still the same size. There's no different size for adults and goslings. It's the same size 8 band. Um, so then the people who know how to age and sex birds to, to, to determine the sex of the bird, you have to do a cloacal exam. Right. Um, so you kind of, the best way to do it, it looks really weird, but the best way to do it is you kind of flip them upside down and you just hold them between your legs a little bit, like between your knees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can open up the cloaca and determine if it's a male or a female. Um, and then we usually have two banders just to make data entry easier. We'll have someone that will be banding um, males and someone that will be, will be banding females. And again, it's the same size band. It's not any different between the sexes. It's just for ease of data entry because usually you have like you know 900 or 1000 bands to sit there and enter so and then once the band is on we just let them let them go yep so now i'm assuming there's a pretty obvious difference when you do that examination to find out if it's male or female uh, yeah, I don't know if you want. So me I've to never done it. Describe I mean, it. Well, so uh, I mean, we might you... lose our uh, PG rating on yeah. iTunes. I don't know. So when you <laughs> open the cloaca up, uh, the way that we usually describe it to like people who are doing it for the first time, like mm-hmm. learning how to do it, like students or whatever they come, uh, you open it up, and in your six o'clock, like if you're looking at it, your six o'clock position of the cloaca, um, if you see a um, a little kind of like the there's a little gray like protuberance there mm-hmm. um that's a female so pretty much there won't be anything in there if it's a female except for that little bump there. okay gotcha. the male you'll open it up if it's an adult male you will see something that looks like a macaroni noodle gotcha let's okay let's call it that and if it's a juvenile male you'll see something that looks like the tip of like a pencil that's usually how we describe okay it to people. all right so <laughs> so i didn't see you would kind of get the idea you open it and look and go okay yeah, that's definitely yes. a dude it's yeah. a dude goose all right. Yeah. Because that's something I never knew. Because, I mean, with some, you know, duck species, it's pretty easy. They just based yeah. on the coloration and yes. stuff. But with the geese, it's uh, definitely, they're pretty similar. Yeah. Looking the males from and the females look the same. Like, we'll, we're actually getting ready to start duck banding here, like, mm-hmm. on August 1st. Um, so duck banding's a lot easier. You can tell males and females just sure. by the plumage. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with juveniles are really easy to pick out, uh, especially at the beginning of duck banding. But if you had to, you could, you know, if you had a bird that look kind of strange, you could still do the same cloacal exam on a duck and gotcha. see pretty much the same thing, just on a smaller scale. So, <laughs> Jay, you were talking about having to have that talk with your kids soon. Just let them <laughs> yeah. listen to the podcast. I might tag them along with you at one of these things okay. and, you know, it might, it might help out. Good, I don't know. Good yeah. first step. Yeah. yeah, good first step. Yeah, here you go, boys. This is how you... <laughs> no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I have three young boys and uh, my, my twins are nine and my oldest yeah. son's 11 and it's... It's a weird stage for uh, for parents and kids, I yeah. guess, because it's starting to get a little awkward around my house. Might be a little different for biologists. These are important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like every day, we're just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe there's a, uh, the program that's kind of like with the uh, where they stock the trout. Mm-hmm. Just get a bunch of people to show up and chase yeah. geese around. I mean, I'd buy a ticket to that. Uh, yeah. We do. We um, you know, we have a game commission staff. Uh, regional staff is always there, but then. You know, if we anticipate we need some more help, we'll bring in some biologists from from Harrisburg or wherever. Mm -hmm. And then every year we have people who just um, want to volunteer. People who may or may not know, you know, sometimes we have game commission 
employee's family or something that'll come. But we get a lot of emails and calls and stuff from local colleges. We had a lot of kids from Keystone that came this year. Uh, local colleges, local high school kids. Um, we have uh, one local girl that comes out with us every year. I think she's in ninth grade. She's been doing it for a couple of years now. She's like a pro at it. Yeah. Nice. Um, so all kinds of local people that want to come and just help out, check yeah. it out. Um, a lot of kids, we even have kids, um, even little kids, we'll let them, you know, if they're, sometimes they're afraid of like yeah. the bigger geese, but if they want to handle goslings and stuff. Yeah. It yeah. was, it was a neat dynamic that day. There were a yeah. lot of a good variety of people there. Yeah. Sometimes the, the wardens will come or, you know, other game commission staff yeah. or whatever. So. I think that'd be a pretty good experience for, to, to get up and close and, you know, mm-hmm. up close and personal with some animals like yeah. that for some kids. I think that would be awesome. Yeah. I, I, have to, I have to follow up, see where you're <laughs> going to be, take my boys up. They'd love to see something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. They'd be riled up for it. Then. Yeah, I bet. Oh, yeah, until it got close and they'd all freak out and run away screaming, I'm it's sure. It's one of those things that we uh, we need a lot of people to do, too. Right, like right. You need a yeah. decent number of people to get around the birds, um, especially, like, in a place where, where you took video, mm-hmm. um, kind of a weird-shaped wetland with woods in the back, and you don't want them to, like, run to the woods mm-hmm. to escape or whatever, so you you do need a decent number of people to actually sure. pull it off. Right. Yeah. Do you guys get any volunteers or do any programs along with like Delta Waterfowl or Ducks Unlimited or some of the organizations uh, that are really big into uh, yeah, the conservation side? Um, so local chapters of DU um, help us with all kinds of stuff. And even uh, so on like local game lands and things like that. And then we have um, national or the regional DU biologist that does a lot of work with us actually. So um different like habitat management projects on game lands that like uh du will fund portions of them or pay for certain parts of them uh we just did a big one on game lands 180 it's uh in pike county shahola it's known as mm-hmm. shahola so. oh i'm a big fan of that yeah. area yeah. so yeah, lake shahola um, is amazing i've actually duck hunted on, and goose yeah, hunted on it's shahola probably our biggest uh fish aside there, from the amazing rivers, area that's yeah that's our biggest it's a beautiful spot up there so that's game lands oh, i just um, gave it away Way, <laughs> way at the um, like southern end of that, there's a propagation area, what we call a waterfowl propagation area. Um, so it's it's off limits um, to like the public or to hunters. Um, although we are experimenting with opening it um, for different seasons, maybe coming up here. But um, there's an actual uh, dam or like a dike back there, so that we could control water levels and and fill and drain. Um, a wetland that we built back there. Uh, beavers and muskrats have over the years gone through or over and worn down that uh, that structure. So um, just this past, well, two years ago, I guess, um, through Ducks Unlimited and some other sponsors, um, we fixed that whole uh, dike system. We put a new control structure in. We put a new uh, inflow system, a new uh, where the water comes out mm-hmm. or comes in from the creek. Um, and the way that we channel it down into the, uh, the wetland, we built a whole new structure there. Um, so DU helps us with all kinds of different like habitat management projects. Cool. Um, local DU um, volunteers and Delta volunteers help us with some, uh, especially on like uh, game lands like 57, 13, 66, that's like up by Ricketts Glen. Um, they help us with uh, some sort of smaller scale projects. They've... Um, Helped us with maintaining like wood duck boxes on those okay, yeah, ponds cool. on those game lands. They've helped us with um, 
they've purchased some aquatic vegetation, uh, little tubers and seeds and things like that, seed mixes that we've uh, gone up there and planted with them. So we have that kind of stuff going on all over the region um, with DU and Delta. Um, but yeah, we have some pretty good Awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. To me, it's, it, it's cool to see those kind of uh, resources kind of come yeah. together. I mean, yeah. it makes sense. You and know. even um, outside the region, you know, there's DU helps us, especially with a lot of these big habitat management projects like at Pima Tuning and Middle Creek, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So Awesome. Yeah. Cool. I think we will. Uh, well, we should wrap up the first half here because we're going on like forty-five minutes. Yeah. So we'll wrap. See, it that goes up faster than you yeah, think, right? It goes. It goes real <laughs> fast. And so we'll wrap this up. We'll take a, a little break, and then we will jump back in because we do have more questions. We'll be right back. And we are back with Molly Giles from the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And we have a few more questions for you that we know where pretty much where it's going to go. But <laughs> so right now you're you're just pretty much waterfowl biologist, correct? Uh, mostly. Um, for at least most of the summer, uh, a lot of the surveys that we're doing the spring and the summer um, are all waterfowl. Uh, like population surveys, banding, getting all that data that we need. Um, And we even do some banding in the winter now, too, uh, that focuses on black ducks. Um, But then as we get into the hunting seasons, um, it's kind of like an all-hands-on-deck for bear season, deer season. So um, do some field work during those times of the year as well that doesn't involve waterfowl, but... Yeah, most of my background is in waterfowl, so it's where yeah, the, see some of the major seasons. part of the year is spent. Yeah, putting a bit of a draw on the resources. Uh, the <laughs> Pennsylvania Game Commission, like, all right, it's bear season, it's deer season. That's yeah, uh, yeah. Those are congratulations. You now work with the deer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Was, and was there a reason that you didn't want to get involved with big games specifically? Uh, it just wasn't really my thing. I just wasn't yeah. uh, really interested in it. Now, when I like when I first started. Uh, when I was uh, an undergrad, um, I had an internship with the Game Commission where we did a lot of bear work, and they were cool, but I just, um, I've always really liked birds. They were yeah. more my thing, um, and specifically, as as time went on, I, you know, I knew I wanted to work with, like, game birds rather than, uh, you know, right. non-game ones, right. um, and I just kind of, I don't know, I just got interested in waterfowl and Went from there. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. But you, you said that you could be pulled into different yeah. fields at times. Mm-hmm. Like just dependent on the season. Yeah. So, so we kind of shift gears. Like um, like in the winter, I'm still uh, banding. We're trying to trap and ban black ducks. But at the same time, we have some snowshoe hair research going on. So we're out collecting that data as well. Um, running those transects and everything. And um Deer or bear season, um, we need a biologist at every bear check station in the state, so I get assigned to a bear check station. Um, Deer season, that's when we uh, 
gather all of our harvest data from mm-hmm. the actual like uh, hunters and from the deer themselves. Um, so it's um, we go we break up into these um, deer aging crews, um, and each crew um, it's usually made up of biologists and even the foresters will get into that as well. So we break up into these crews of two or three people, depending on how big your area is. Um, and then each, um, each crew goes to deer processors within that area. Um, the deer processors are, you know, our crew leader uh, contacts them ahead of time. They know we're coming and asks them to save the heads from the deer that they process um, so that we can get all of our harvest information um, and age, sex uh, data from the harvested deer as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> how do how would that number? Because you you obviously must total that at mm. some point, right? Does that number factor into the total harvest then, or is that you know what I mean? Like the, if they the number that we're sa- like that we're sampling. Right. Well, they'll come out with like the end of the year harvest report. Yeah. So, how do you guys like factor that? And there must be like a like a ratio, right? Yeah. Because uh, obviously it's not like fully, you're not getting a full Yeah, we're not sam- like sampling every right. head because people are going to process their own deer at mm, home. Or, right. You know, one may be way down on the bottom of the dumpster and we never see it or whatever. Right. So I don't, I, I honestly don't know how that factors in, no. but I'm sure much like with the waterfowl where we kind of, um, you know, we survey a breeding area and then we extrapolate what we find over the entire state or whatever. So um, it's probably the same kind of uh, same kind of thing there, right, where they like a, like a certain extrapolate percentage. it a little right. bit. Okay, um, I got you. To get the right number. So it's, it's got to be kind of a common practice with that because it's just like how how else yeah. can, how other way can you do it really? Yeah. Yeah, and that actually reminds me of something else I wanted to bring up before. So there there must be a certain percentage of your your findings that go towards like just the unknown. Like there's bands out there that never recovered, yep. never found, and just you, yeah, you it assume like predators or how, how do you... Uh, it could be anything. It could just be that bird just dies out there in the landscape in a spot where no one ever finds it or yeah, yeah. predator gets it or um, uh, for, for band return, the band return rate is like 80%. So... That's pretty good. It's Yeah, it's yeah, pretty good. That's, that's way more than I would think. Yeah. Sure. Because I, I don't know how that actually compares to like the report card harvest yeah i'm i i'm not sure what the return yeah. rate of those is but generally like um for waterfowl like most waterfowl hunters really want to know when they get a band of bird they want to yeah, know like right. where did this come from how old is it whatever they want information right. on it so right. they want to turn it in um i don't know if the same can be said for you know for deer yeah. or whatever but De- definitely two <laughs> different groups of hunters there for yeah. sure. indeed for indeed sure. indeed uh, yeah the, the whole band thing i think there's um it's uh, the the hunter, waterfowl hunters just love those bands. Oh, They're yeah. like you know that's the that's the ten point buck yeah. for mm-hmm. you know that's yep. what they look for. You know it's like a little bonus trophy. So I, I guess I could see that it would be a pretty high return because there's interest there. There's yeah. a you know it's kind of like a little part of the story mm-hmm. uh, that kind of comes along with it. So you know you see the guys with the the lanyards and yep. there's you know bands all over the lanyards. <laughs> mm-hmm. So to see that's kind of part of the 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 story is I think that's probably maybe plays into a lot of why there's such a high yeah. return on that. So that you never makes know sense. when you're gonna get a really that's interesting it. bird from Canada or something like that. Yes, so. especially if you're into like the taxidermy side of it. I mean, if yeah. you get you know uh, a really cool mallard and you want to have it, you know, this is the mallard you're gonna have mounted, and yeah. you take the fact that it's banded too, 
it's kind of a cool little thing you can add yeah. to it. You know, a little certificate along right. with the uh, the taxidermy mount or something like mm-hmm. that. So there's, yeah, it's pretty cool. So yeah, we we went off topic there, but <laughs> that's, that's because, my specialty. Yeah, well, no, because I just I remembered about if, if bands go missing, like how, like what factor or what yeah. percentage that is. But you were talking about aging deer mm. at, at these at these. Um, I get do you, do you take the head and then do it somewhere else, or do you do it? Right? No, we'll usually do it right there and then um, let them get rid of it. Like we'll yeah, we'll <laughs> usually get to the processor. They'll have. Uh, barrels or something off to the side of just heads sometimes mm-hmm. there's other treasures in there as well but um <laughs> usually it's just heads um and so we'll just kind of dig through those and um we uh we get all the like uh harvest information um from the tag that's still attached to the ear in some cases the tag falls off or whatever and then we can't use that deer right um but you know your management unit um county township stuff like that is all right. on that tag um, so we're getting that part of the harvest information from that. And then um, we know if it's a male or female because of antlers or no antlers or, you know. Um, and then um, to look at the age, we're doing, uh, we're looking at the wear on the teeth. Mm-hmm. So we have to go uh, through each head and um, usually cut the cheek open so we can get a better look at the teeth. And then we determine the age of each. So how it usually works, at least for our crew, we have three people. Um, we have two people. Uh, cutting and aging and whatever, and then one person working uh, the iPad to mm-hmm. take down all the info. So we just kind of call out what what we're getting, and they take it all down. So Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's pretty gross. I'm not going to lie. Well, it's cool <laughs> that you have, like, a couple people with you to try yeah. and take on that, yeah. you know, by yourself would <laughs> oh, probably, yeah. yeah, be not only less pleasant, but yeah. uh, and we try to do a, a, long, a much longer intense process each week of the deer season. So we're, uh, like, getting a good sample. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the processors will save, you know, everything for us. Um, so usually by week three, you're starting to get a little crazy. Do you, <laughs> do, you do any of that during archery season or is it only during rifle season? Uh, no, we don't do any, anything at processors during the archery okay. season. What are you usually doing during archery season? Um, like October. That's usually November. a pretty slow like, yeah. that's kind of a month where I actually can be in the office, like, catching up on things. Right. Um, and usually we're getting ready for, like, bear check and everything uh, in October and November. So. This job sounds ideal. <laughs> I know, right? Like, a lull during October, <laughs> beginning of November. Yeah, there you go. Usually just, um, like, I go back through all my data and get everything yeah. organized for the summer that I didn't have time to right. to look at. And, um, you know, just go over reports and... There's a lot of, uh, I also do a lot of stuff with like habitat management. So it's a good time of year to catch okay. up on a lot of that stuff and prepare for next year. Uh, as far as like the processors, is that something that's mandated that they have to hold those heads or is it something that's voluntarily I don't, that like, they do? So I think how it works is the crew leaders. Um, so our crew leader will get a list of all the processors that are in our area. Um, and then. I think he sends them a letter or calls them or something. Right. Um, and they, they may tell us, no, I don't want you guys to come. And that's. Okay. You know, yeah. We just don't go there. But. It seems like they'd be pretty open to it. I mean. Yeah. I, mean, I guess it depends on, you know, each one. But yeah. yeah I, I wasn't sure if do, that was something um, that they had to do or if that's something that's kind of like I a volunteer. they have to. Yeah. But. Um, like we do two, like it's usually two days of aging mm-hmm. per week for us. Um, so we have one route each day, and I think we have six or seven or eight processors on each of those routes. So, okay. 
usually takes a whole day to get through them. I can imagine. some pretty big ones that we might be there for a couple hours or something. Right, right, so, like travel time yeah. in between, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so I have to ask then, as, as far as these heads and CWD is concerned, what do you do to sample that? Because I, okay. I, you guys are sampling yeah. for CWD. Yeah, so um, they have more intensive sampling that goes on, uh, like, all year down in, like, the actual disease management areas. Mm-hmm. Um and if we would have a suspect deer, like one that was sick or whatever, you know, even whatever time of year, we would obviously sample that. Um, but as far as during regular deer season, when we're going through these barrels, um, we we need certain a certain number of, of samples, CWD samples from each uh, management unit. Okay. So when we find those ones in the barrel, we... Um, we actually wrap them up in a bag, and yeah. we uh, have we take them to our regional office where we have another crew of biologists who's doing CWD extraction, so sample extraction. Um, so so yeah, they are getting sampled. We've we've done that for years. That was even before you know this big outbreak occurred. Right. Um, but even though we don't have known cases of CWD in the Northeast region yet, we are still sampling for it. Right. So. And I think that's that's important for, for people to know, you know, because, it, I mean, undoubtedly, it's growing. Mm-hmm. They, they have maps that show the, the spread of it, and uh, I don't know, that just can't be denied. So so you were saying that they've been doing they've been doing this sampling for quite a while. Yeah. I'm not sure the exact year, but yeah. Right. Okay. Have you, have they changed, or, or has it intensified in any way, any of the... the uh, in the disease management areas, like I said, yeah. they do more intensive sampling. They sample, um, you know, now hunters can put their head into one of those bins that they can have their deer sampled. Right. Um, the biologists down there sample, you know, road kills and suspect deer and everything. So it's a lot more intensive down in that part of the state. Yeah. But that definitely makes, on the lookout for it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's a kind of a scary thing. I mean, it something that we should just be cognizant of and try to stay ahead of as, as much as possible. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. And there's you no know, people who've heard us uh, listen to this frequently. They, they know where we stand on that. Yeah. We're, you know, it's something that's a fact of, of life and we have to kind of, like you said, stay ahead of it as best we can. So yeah, the fact that you guys are, even when it's not really in the area, you guys are still testing for it. It's great. Cause I mean, how else are you going to really pin it down? So yeah. the earlier we changed. can identify it, the more, you know, proactive we can be versus yeah. reactive. We've changed our, like, um, our method of sampling, like when CWD first, like first came into Pennsylvania, um, we actually set up like a, like a check station mm-hmm. where hunters would bring their deer in. Um, we sort of changed how we do all that stuff now over the, the last couple of years, but the sampling is still, is still happening even, even in areas of the state where we don't have known cases of it yet. Um, cause neighboring states of ours do have it. So right. we could come in from anywhere. Um, not just, from the south that's it yeah it's 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 uh it's vulnerable yeah vulnerable topic (laughs) yeah and i i I feel like i could think of like a thousand questions related to it just because it's i don't know it's just something that we should be worried about i feel Mm -hmm. like you know it's the biggest threat to our deer population right now i would say but so in these when when you're at the processor and you're, you're taking samples it's from buck endo. Yeah. And some of the buck have had their their antlers removed, like mm-hmm. the skull plate. Yeah. Are they still able to 
get a CWD sample from that? Yes. Because a lot of people think, oh, you know, the brain would be damaged somehow. Maybe you wouldn't be able to sample. But mm -hmm. We actually don't sample, like, the actual brain. Okay. Um, we're actually sampling in the brain stem. We're taking uh, a piece of, like, the bottom of the brain stem and then two lymph nodes that would be, like, in, in the neck, sort of. So those are the big, uh, the two best places to okay. get a sample from. So it's more... Um, the underside of the head, gotcha. the actual neck. Gotcha. Where we, yeah. Do they do the a similar process with the elk in Pennsylvania? Is that something that they commonly test yes. for? Yes. Well, well, it's a little bit different it... for elk because um, for elk, when you harvest an elk, you have to bring it to the check station. Sure. So uh, the elk check station, there's a bunch of biologists there, and we're collecting that a bunch of different samples, but CWD is one of them that we're okay. collecting uh, right at the check station. Unless it's a, a bull that someone is going to have mounted or whatever and they don't want us, because we have to cut essentially right into the, the neck, like sure. the bottom of the jawbone. Obviously, you don't want us cutting into your like trophy bull. So um, in that case, um, I believe the hunter gets sent home with a cooler. Um, and then when the elk goes to the taxidermist, when the taxidermist is done with it, he puts the parts we need in that cooler mm -hmm. and sends them back to us. So a little bit different just because of the check station. Sure, sure. That's, yeah. a, that's it. It's kind of and like it's a it lot combines fewer the deer and the bear process. Than, yeah, well, <laughs> sure. Deer, so. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, a, that's a really cool success story as well, but maybe that's, that might be for another podcast, but <laughs> yeah. the whole elk story. Um, but. Yeah, actually, uh, a guide, an elk guide, just reached out to the page this hmm. week. Oh, is that right? So that would probably be a good... Good podcast. Oh, I love talking to him. You guys should go to the elk check station. Well, that, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> so how much interaction have you had with the, the elk herd? Have you been down there? And, uh, yeah. Do they, do they have their own dedicated biologist? Yes, there is a state elk biologist and some uh, biologists that work, you know, with him. Um, and actually, that was totally random. A few years ago, my boss was supposed to go help at the elk check yeah. And something happened. He ended up not being able to go. So I went in his place. Nice. And now every year they ask me to come back for one Did day of check awesome. station. Yeah, it's once you know how everything operates, like the samples we're taking and whatever, yeah. um, Jeremy, the elk biologist, is just kind of like, well, you know, just keep coming back. So yeah, <laughs> you nice. know how everything works. <laughs> Jeremy. No, Jeremy Banfield. Yeah, that sounds like a name great. I should probably write Him down. Him and his, uh, his bio aid, they're both great. So <laughs> Are you writing it down? I was about to. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to write it down. Maybe I'll But no, check station would be... I think you guys would really like it because there's a lot yeah. going on. Um, yeah. You know, the elk, they come in, they get weighed and everything on one side. Then they come around. They come to the, the biologist station, and there's a bunch of different samples being taken. Yeah. The state, well, um, the state vet is there. The, right. Our wildlife veterinarian is there. Yeah. Um, we currently don't have one. That's another position we're hiring right now. But um, but they're there taking a bunch of, a bunch of their samples and everything. So it's yeah. there's a lot going on there. We should set up our station. Take the take like a, a loin sample. Yeah, you know? we're gonna have, we're gonna might have it's it's, yeah. a, it's for science. It's yeah. all in the name of science. This one tastes okay. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's see. I told you we'd get there. Yeah, yeah. We, we talk about food at some point. There's al it always snakes around somehow. Yeah, somehow. Um, but uh, yeah, that's 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 pretty cool. Um, th that's something that I think we should consider. Maybe even just to get down there and see the herd. Yeah, you know, uh, that's something that I've been wanting yeah. to do. Uh, I was waiting for my boys to get a little older yeah. to where they would appreciate it. And September's I think the best there. time to go when they're oh, bugling and everything. Yeah, I'm dying. I, 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 that might bring a tear to my eye. I'm, <laughs> I got a soft spot for elk, especially it Pennsylvania really cool. elk. Yeah. Uh, so that the whole recovery story is I'm big into like the conservation yeah. side of, of hunting, and that's just a it's a sweet spot for mm -hmm. uh, for anybody who's into hunting and conservation is the whole Pennsylvania elk story. Yeah. Uh, I think only rivaled by the Kentucky 
elk story, yeah. which is really cool yeah. too. But again, I, I think we have to dedicate a whole <laughs> yeah. half a podcast just to that. Um, so someone like Jeremy would probably be uh, perfect to have that conversation with because uh, and to do some footage and film down at oh, one of the yeah. check stations. Yeah, for that sure. would yeah. be a, a really cool, interesting story. I think check stations just fun too. The hunters mm-hmm. come in and they're really. You know, they're really excited. Oh, yeah, I bet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 And Meet a lot of cool people there. See. Absolutely. People will be lo- would be really open to having conversations, too, I'm sure. Yeah. Everyone Plus, now wants to it's, tell at, their story, you know? it's yeah. at the Elk Visitor Center. Right. Um, so you have the Visitor Center there, and that's bringing people in that are just there to see the elk. And, and Sometimes the herd is, like, right there, right? Actually, yeah. It was really yeah. weird this year, because this was the first year it was at the Elk Visitor Center. So, like, you have the big overlook with the field there. So there's, yeah. like, live elk, and then there's, like, Harvested elk so coming in right next right to them. Yeah. The oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Like elk overload. I'm yeah. telling you. I'm okay with it, though. Yeah. I'm okay yeah. with it. <laughs> but uh, kind of on the same topic of the whole recovery story, uh, we, we briefly touched on on uh, Pennsylvania grouse mm-hmm. and that whole kind of program. You guys have some programs going on with, with the grouse as well. Yeah, well, we're looking at um, – so the two big factors affecting grouse are uh, habitat loss and West Nile virus. Mm-hmm. So we have um, – some new uh, staff that came on that's trying to investigate that West Nile part of things a little sure. better. So actually trapping mosquitoes to see um, what species are uh, on these game lands or these areas we want to study. Um, and if they're the species that do bite grouse and yeah. can't affect grouse. So. Well, that's the thing. I used to hunt grouse years ago. And, you know, where we would go to hunt these grouse <laughs> Is in the areas where they're very swampy, yep. low wetland type areas exactly. where they really where set mosquitoes. up residence, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of mosquitoes yep. in that area. So you could see how that would kind of drive a parallel. But yeah. you know, when you hear West Nile, it's kind of like that. Ooh, it's a spooky disease. But yeah. you know, when you think about humans, but when it comes down to the birds, I mean, it's it, it's it's been pretty devastating. I mean, so uh, do you know much about like kind of the numbers where they were, where they are, where they're heading, um, or I don't know if you got I, too much I'm into not sure that of side the of it. Exact numbers, no. Uh, but, yeah, they're, 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 they've been taking a beating over, yes, over the last have. couple of years. And the habitat loss, I mean, any species out there is kind of suffering a little bit from habitat loss, but it's such a vital thing for the yeah. for the grouse. And it being, you know, the Pennsylvania state bird, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's something that uh, you, you would think more people would have a better handle on. Maybe some people do, but in my experience, a lot of people are not really familiar because they're so challenging to hunt now because they're yeah you know, depending on who you talk to some people are like i see them every day i see them all the time yeah um and other people are like i haven't seen one in five years mm-hmm. so i guess you know Similar that falls the under the habitat thing right yeah. you know um that's part of the part of the research that we're doing is mm-hmm. uh, like you said they tend they tend to be associated with like those swampy areas so yeah. we're trying to look at uh, more higher elevation areas um so one of the big study sites is up near Ricketts Glen on those okay. game lands. Sure. Um, so we're trying to look at, you know, maybe some higher elevation areas where maybe those mosquitoes wouldn't live. And then we could focus um, habitat, you know, conservation efforts in those areas and get those grouse, you know, to come back sure. in those areas if these wetland, more wetland associated areas aren't aren't good for them anymore. Right, right. That, so. That'd be an interesting story to follow along yeah. to as well. See how they're, how they're making that comeback. That um, mountain property that I hunt on has a ton of grouse. Yeah. On the t- and it's... It's higher up on the hill, and sure. yeah. but it was just all logged at one point. And every time, you know, I, I cut myself paths to get to my stands and stuff, but I'll kick out four or five grouse <laughs> on the way there, and I don't hunt them. I'll yeah. tell you what, that's <laughs> one of those things that'll make you need to change your drawers when you're walking through yeah. the, yeah. the grouse flushes. Especially in the in thick the brush like that, yeah. you know? Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff, man. I'm scared the bejesus out of you. But um, on the same note, you said turkeys are also involved in this 
Yeah, there's some um, similar research that we did with the grouse that maybe they um, that we're thinking of starting on to see if turkeys are affected by what's oh, okay. so as that, well. that hasn't happened yet. Just... No, it's kind of in the in the in the works right now. So you, have you done a lot of work with turkeys? No, <laughs> no? <laughs> no, no, I haven't actually. No, no. You didn't get to shoot the rockets over them. No, uh, we haven't actually done that in quite a while, but um, we may want to start some banding, some turkey banding again. Um, it's no, kind of one of the things we're, that we're talking about. Um, but no, I've never never done the rocket netting with turkeys. Oh, that seems like a pretty good uh, tactic. I'm going to have to ch- trade in the 12-gauge and the <laughs> yeah. bow for uh, a rocket. couple of rockets and a net. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll have better success than the way I've been going. You had, some, you had success this year. Last year, yeah. Oh, this year, yeah. No, yeah, this year. Well, last, no, last year I did, but this year I was involved in a couple hunts. Only. But yeah, secondhand yeah. success. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it yeah. how it comes. But yeah, I'm, I'm one of the world's worst turkey hunters. <laughs> as much as I love it, it's... Uh, <laughs> if you judge it by success, I guess, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty bad. The the turnaround of the wild turkey, though, is probably rivals the, the, the elk. elk. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, somebody just did a story on that. I just I was just looking at uh, this the, the bounce back of the uh, the eastern the eastern wild mm-hmm. turkey. Uh, is it uh, Meliagris Galapavo? Mm-hmm. Am I saying that right? We did a whole yeah. se- whole segment on uh, turkey <laughs> okay. uh, back in the spring. And uh, so we really dove into that. We had a, a, a world champion turkey caller oh, on okay. with us, and uh, uh, Hunter Wallace. So we went over all kinds of different turkey stuff, and that was. Uh, I have to revisit that one. That was a fun one. Yeah, <laughs> that one was good. We did a lot of video on that one too. But uh, yeah, turkeys are just man. Talk about an obsessive animal. Well, <laughs> people obsess over them. Yeah, yeah uh, definitely. Yeah, it reminds me of waterfowl hunters. They're kind of uh, completely different people than the waterfowl yeah. people, but they. Just as obsessive. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, tur- turkey's the only thing that's going to get me out of bed at three thirty in the morning. Yeah, fair enough. Hunt for a couple hours, then go to work, and then stay up, and then do the same thing like several days in a row. Yeah, to the point where you're just <clears throat> not there anymore. <laughs> it's usually how like a lot of our surveys are for me. So yeah, sure. Yeah. So how about like? Uh, Anything that you'd want to kind of tell anybody that you, you might find interesting mm. as far as from, like, uh, your perspective in uh, like that uh, uh, a waterfowl hunter or even a person who doesn't hunt waterfowl that's kind of uh, just interested and intrigued by it? Yeah. Oh, geez, I don't know. I put you on the spot there. Uh, um. <laughs> well, what, what's your, what's your, your favorite part about the whole banding process and the research process? And what, what part do you find fascinating the most? Oh, I mean, the actual, like, day-to-day work out there, just being out outside every day. And I really like wetlands, so I just get to, like, hang out in wetlands all day. That's kind of my favorite part. Awesome. Um, Like, getting paid to kayak, to traps, and whatever. But once the data starts coming in, I really enjoy seeing, like, where these band returns you know, these weird bands that show up from other states or whatever. Oh, sure, yeah. It's got to be kind of like a little bit of a Christmas morning type deal. That's the really interesting part for me, like migration patterns and things like that. Um, Because we do get some, we don't get many, um, what we call foreign recaptures, ones from outside of uh, our banding block, we call it. Um, But when we do, they're really interesting. Like this past winter for our black duck banding, we had, I think, a bird from... Uh, one from Ontario and one from Quebec, so that was pretty cool. We nice. do get we do get some weird ones occasionally. Right, it's right. Interesting. Have you ever been up to Canada to do any 
kind of research there. I have like, not. It doesn't really bring it Um It would be really cool, and I've thought about it a couple of times, but um, like the goose banding uh, that they do on like the breeding grounds in Canada, right. it happens like in August, which is the same time that I'm like duck banding here, so right. it's really hard to get away. Gotcha. Um, but a couple of years ago, we, I did kind of consider it. Um, I just never went through with it. You're, it's pretty remote. Like, yeah. You go to these like really remote towns um, for, I think it's like a week or two. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been up to Canada yet, but I've heard it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and they do it a little different there. I think they kind of like bring you in by like helicopter. Really? Yeah, and that's like you get dropped yeah. onto the banding site. Yeah. Um, and it's still the same kind of concept. You herd these birds into mm-hmm. like panels or whatever, but it's uh, and you know like there's polar bears, right? To deal with <laughs> right. and yeah. stuff like that. So it's yeah. they're it's so pretty cute wild. And cuddly though, polar <laughs> yeah. bears are such nice animals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to rip you. It would be them. really cool to go up there though, but. Yeah, so you do all your work mainly then in the Atlantic Flyway. Mm-hmm. How does the Atlantic Flyway kind of relate to some of the others? Like, was it what's the biggest? Is it the Central or the is it the Central Flyway? The yeah, bigger, Central Flyway's got a pretty, pretty big. Uh, decent, you know, migration uh, route going through it. So, some different birds that we don't see over in this part of the country. So, but. as far as the, the so does the size of the flyway kind of relate to the size of the flock that occupies that flyway, or is that yeah. something that's just not really just well when you like if you think about it like where most of North America's waterfowl is like nesting. Mm-hmm. So you're talking like Alaska, uh, northern Canada, down into like the prairies of Canada and even the US, the prairie pothole regions. That's mm-hmm. where most of the birds are actually um, nesting and breeding. And then when, when the time comes, when fall comes and they have to migrate, that's where they all come from. So okay, right. those central and western flyways, um, those are where the majority of birds are going to be flying through very cool uh, the uh the so up there that was kind of coming back around to like the, the mallards and stuff we didn't get to talk about those guys yet or the <clears throat> some of the wood duck species but the um the mallards had a rough go was it was it last year or the year before where they took kind of a hit well the... mallard populations have actually been declining since like the 90s really yeah, that it's, far ago. See, it's I'd, been a while. Yeah, yeah. I I'd done a little bit of research, and again, like I haven't hunted waterfowl in a few years, but uh, just kind of looking back at it, you start to see a, there there's been a pretty yeah. drastic decline. But I didn't realize it goes back that far. Yep, it's it's been going on for a while. So, and that's kind of one of the uh, the big issues in waterfowl right now is um, some of the regulatory changes we've had to make because of that that decline in mallards. Sure. So but it's such yeah. a popular species. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's kind it's of an weird iconic because, um, representation of, of ducks in general. Yeah. Which is strange for the Atlantic flyway because historically mallards weren't even associated with our flyway. No kidding. No, they're like a mid continent species. And just over time they've either been introduced and moved around, um, or just, you know, changed their migration a little bit, but yeah, right. historically it was the black duck. The Atlantic mm-hmm. flyway was the flyway you saw black ducks sure. in and, Mallards were like more in the mid mid continent area. How about that? I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I, I do that. But I mean, I'm, I mean, I started hunting ducks probably in like ninety three, mm-hmm. maybe ninety four. Well, that explains. Yeah. <laughs> that explains the decline. Yeah. <laughs> See that? I'm a, not the greatest turkey hunter, but look out, ducks. Yeah. What um? So if we've been seeing that trend since the nineties, do we actually know? Like, what what have we? 
pulled from that that we we could contribute it to? So there's kind of a couple, I guess, theories or whatever, mm-hmm. reasons that we think they're in decline. Uh, habitat loss, um, loss of wetlands, but also like the wetlands we do have aren't, aren't of the quality that they used to be. Um, changes in agriculture, too, have affected some of the duck populations. Um, uh, one, of the th- one of the theories is uh, winter feeding. So people who feed waterfowl in the winter don't do that as much anymore because now when you feed waterfowl, you draw in, like, nuisance geese, and nobody wants nuisance mm. geese hanging around. Fair enough, yeah. So um, there's not as many people feeding birds in the winter, which... There is one theory that said, that thinks maybe that has some effects on mallard like fitness and survival right. for the winter, um, and but out of all these things that could be causing it, um, overharvest could is one of them, and right. that's the one that we can control that we can have some kind of control over. So there is some uh, research being done or starting that we're starting to do on um, these other factors like the habitat issue. Um, They also think that maybe some of it could be linked to uh, um, hybridization with like game farm mallards. So if we're combining, you know, these wild birds and these, these stock mallards, there could be some kind of uh, genetic effect there where maybe these birds aren't as, as fit. Okay, so survival, um, survival rate declines. Yeah, right. so survival rate. So there is some work starting to be done on the habitat issues, the genetic issues. Um, but we need to start doing something now, and the thing that we can control is is the harvest. So that's where these regulatory changes came from for this year. Awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's it, it, if you can control it. I mean, there's a lot of things out there you really can't, yeah. you know, whether right. it be uh, – predator numbers i mean that you can control to an extent but you know when it comes to like the harvest numbers that's a it's an interesting way to look at it yeah because a lot of people again you see a, a harvest uh, like a bag limit go down it's like why yeah. are we well, why why are we losing bag limits and people mm-hmm. get really again that's that emotional response yep. and um to, so to for someone to hear the, the kind of scientific uh reasoning for mm-hmm. why maybe a bag limit would be decreased or a season length or window would be yeah. kind of altered um it explains a lot uh we, we kind of touched on the wood ducks they're they're by far my favorite yes. waterfowl they are our um, nicest our prettiest one so in cool. the flyway absolutely yeah. they're just they're really beautiful and uh and they're kind of tasty uh, i wish they were a little bigger <laughs> to be honest with you uh but you know they you know a lot of the questions you see patient or i'm sorry uh hunters especially newer hunters are you know why is there two seasons like why is there an early and then you had like around was it Octoberish mm-hmm. is the early season. Then you have another one in like the January February yeah. uh, area. So you know the the wood ducks will usually migrate out of this area at, mm-hmm. for the second season, right? Typically, yeah. It depends on what the weather's like for that year, but yeah. So having that earlier season gives you an opportunity to kind of mm-hmm. uh, establish a management uh, program through the the harvest. Yeah. So we try to, um, you know, put the opportunity out there for. Um, hunters to harvest the birds they want to mm-hmm. at the times of the year they want to. But everything's timed on migrations and sure. things like that. So we don't, we don't want, um, you know, birds getting over-harvested or whatever during certain migratory movements and things like that. Um, and I think you had asked me a question, you had emailed me a question or something about um, uh, shifting, like, 
I think you said, have has there ever been a consideration for sort of doing away with early season right. and uh, making the late season go on longer? Or yeah, yeah, like a longer late oh, season yeah. versus, you know, breaking it so, into two seasons um, and stuff. <clears throat> like studies actually have shown that when you when you harvest birds, when you put hunting pressure on them any later than like mid-January, there is a there there is an effect on breeding that coming spring. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So you don't want to put too much hunting disturbance on them at that time of year. Um, so that's why the season can't really go any later than that. Fair enough. No, that's 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 a good... October, like to beginning of January, middle of January is fine. Like we mm-hmm. can make management decisions um, to benefit the hunters. Um, you know, like we changed the north zone. Uh, made that a little different this year based on comments we got and whatever. So in that time that time period, we can make decisions based on hunters' comments and things like that. Once you get any later than like mid-January, it's more of a biological issue though, and we don't want to sure. pressure the birds too much during that time of the year. That's it. I mean, it's great to make decisions, you know, to, to benefit the hunter. But you know, what we have to remember as hunters is we're here to benefit the species. So we're kind of a uh, we've mentioned it before. We're 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 tools. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we're but we're in a useful joking way. aside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we're we're a tool that you know people like yourself who are really working towards uh, ensuring the survival of these species that you could use us uh, to you know keep the numbers in check and to report. Yeah. Uh, so reporting the yeah. bands, um, the the ear tags for the deer, uh, all that stuff. You know yeah. the check stations Lots for the elk and the bear. Lots of hunter surveys. I mean, I mean even it. with the that mallard issue, mm-hmm. like. Um, there was a survey that went out for that that asked hunters like, "What are your feelings on, uh, you know, a, a lower bag limit this mm-hmm. year?" And actually, the response to that was um, most hunters didn't mind the smaller bag, as long as that was going to help increase the population mm-hmm. overall down the line. Sure. So, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm getting a very day and night. <laughs> comparison between like the deer hunter and the waterfowl hunter right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a like little bit. It, was it like an open-ended survey? Could they write anything? It was a, I don't know. And it was online. It was an okay. online survey. I can't remember what exactly it looked like. If it was that could get dangerous. Yes Can you no imagine like just whatever. an open-ended like send us, send us a note? Send a note to the game commission. Here's a comment section. Think. Yeah. 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 You'd have to hire a full-on staff just to get through that. It'd be fun to read, though. Absolutely. Well, there'd probably be some really good stuff. Probably, I mean, you know, probably, really good yeah, suggestions. Really well written, very grammatically correct. Exactly. A lot good of stuff. Proper punctuation. <laughs> Uh, or we're joking. We're joking. We're joking. <laughs> Holy crap! You know, people showing up at our house. Yeah. Um, but waterfowl, waterfowl <laughs> hunters are. Um, I mean, we do like we said at the the um, the symposium every year. We get people that come and actually ask us questions there. We also get tons of emails throughout the year <clears throat> sent into Harrisburg or whatever. So. They do voice their opinions very well. Sure, yeah. and, that, and that's good because, I mean, like you said, you know, you do get some valuable information there. And that's yeah. one thing, you know, you know, waterfowl hunters are a special breed for sure. Just like turkeys are, turkey hunters are yeah. and, you know, muzzleloader guys. Everyone <laughs> has their own little kind of niche de- demographic, you know. Um, but, you know, a lot of the guys that I've I kind of talked to a few guys that leading up to this and they're very committed to 
understanding the species because yeah. I mean honestly they're a tricky tricky yeah. animal to uh, kind of get in front of at times yeah. especially when you're like some of the earlier seasons you may not you just get in the beginning of that migration so there there's not as much a you know a plethora of birds at, at maybe the earlier season uh, mm. so that's where a lot of guys start thinking well I'd I'd give up the early season if we had more time in the late season yeah. because that's when you start to get really starts to really heat up mm. but then you run into issues with like you said freezing over and icing over yep. and stuff like that so then they're migrating more on the rivers and it's, it's it presents its own set of challenges yeah. um but yeah and actually surveys have shown that like your really avid waterfowl hunters do prefer late season mm -hmm. um but overall like the survey has shown that people like the early season so. sure well the early yeah. season's a little bit more of a comfortable season to hunt yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to put it early, lightly early yeah. late season archery same yeah same, same, same thing early season archery versus late season archery i mean uh, we we did a pro we, we hunted both when i was doing it we'd hunt early season you know right from september 1st 2nd 3rd right when the geese you know, the goose season opened right along mm -hmm. with the dove. Uh, we'd do that, mm -hmm. you know, and then we'd get geared up. We'd go do some October duck hunting, which is a really beautiful time to be out it doing it. Yeah. So it's a great time to, to experience, uh, you know, just the woods, the water, the, the swamps. It's a, it's a great time of year to be out there. And you're not freezing your tail off. <laughs> um, but then we did a lot of late season, which is tricky because we did a lot of river, yeah. you know, river hunting in the yeah. late season because the water's moving. So... But, you know, when you hunt with a dog and stuff like that, it's, it's, you know, December, you don't want your January, you don't want your dog jumping in the river too often. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that presents its own set of challenges. But, yeah, it's, it's, so it's interesting to hear kind of how that impacts, how the hunting pressure could impact uh, mm -hmm. the species and their breeding, which is why. Yeah. You know, and, again, the, the wood duck aspect. You know, you're yeah. going to see a lot more of them in the earlier season, and mm -hmm. uh, that helps kind of keep those numbers in, in, in a bit of a check there. Wood ducks are doing really well, actually. Their populations are doing really well. Um, I believe they're our most harvested bird in Pennsylvania. So I believe that, yeah. yeah. I, I, finding out that the mallards weren't really common to this area was surprising to me. Yeah, that's, that's, that usually like surprises said, most of, people. Yeah, they're, they're kind um, of like how the... It, how it goes. So they don't... And people think that because they see mallards more often. Sure. But that just has to do with the fact that, like, um, as opposed to black ducks, because of where black ducks like breed which mm -hmm. is further north you know canada um so we kind of see mallards more often so people mm -hmm. think oh well there's mallards, more mallards yeah, around right. and you know they're fine their populations are fine but yeah that's uh that's, that was interesting find that out that's it yeah see you learn something new every day man yeah. <laughs> and that, that human observation is such a big thing now especially because of social media yeah and people think that they're getting the whole picture Instantly, just by seeing what they're seeing, and a snapshot, yeah. a quote, yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a, even a, a headline from an article that you never read—that's yeah. a big problem. Yeah. You know, people see a headline and they just they extrapolate everything they need to know from eight words mm. and a headline on, on an article, and they don't really d dive in, which is a problem with you know guys who are big on you know who lean more towards clickbait. Uh, yeah. to get their content yeah. out there. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of like our our space. That's why that's where my mind always goes. Sure, when, when sure. We talk about these kind of things, yeah. you know. And that's um, one of the things that we were really excited about having you on is because to to focus more on like Mark's always referencing the scientific method. I mean, he's got a a biology background when he okay. went to school and and stuff like that. So to to focus on that and to, to show evidence of this is why we need to take the emotion out of it. Quit the knee-jerk reaction stuff and lean more towards the data and the stuff that you guys are working so yeah. hard to uh, to kind of compile so that we can get a really uh, good 
reference mm. as to how to proceed. Like we said, setting bag limits in, establishing season lengths and stuff like that. I mean, the, the data you that you collect, I mean, it's obviously it's going to show when and how frequently the the animals, these birds are migrating. Yeah. So if they're migrating earlier one year, I mean, is that something that changes drastically from year to year? Or is that more like five, six years? Is it I like mean, a the slower? The migrations are, um, they're pretty like straightforward. Yeah. But um, more and more there's like shifts to them now uh, with like climate change. Mm -hmm. You know, we have these warmer winters now, so uh, birds may not go as far south as they once had to. Okay. Um, they may shift the way they move through the flyway, move to different part of the flyway, things like That's that. That's an interesting thing too, yeah, because um, we used to pay attention to that a lot. But I mean, this is before the internet. We would read everything we could find to see when are they shifting more towards the eastern yeah. side of the Atlantic flyway yeah. because you know you're going to have a better season if they're shifting One their migration One of the big things they talk east. about is it's called short stopping, which is, like I said, birds don't feel the need to go as far south right. anymore, so they short stop, you know. Like those birds that we were talking about in South Carolina, mm -hmm. they don't go to South Carolina anymore. They may stop in the Chesapeake or something instead, and that's as far as they go. Hmm. So, yeah, does, does, it, does that happen like randomly? Or it depends on the winter. Like we've seen, uh, actually, I think maybe it was the one of the years when I was down in South Carolina. We had um, I can't remember what month it was, but I remember maybe like in you know. Uh, areas around Maryland and like Virginia that may not freeze in a typical winter. We got like a real cold snap and everything froze and suddenly this push of geese showed up in South Carolina. So they may just, if if the weather pushes yeah. them and they have to go somewhere, then they may remember, oh, I used to go to South Carolina. Let's yeah. go there, you know. So it just depends yeah. on what, I mean, we have such weird winter weather anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah, <laughs> Seriously, weird true. winter, weird spring. Yeah. It's been really, uh, yeah, it's been very noticeable. Yeah. yeah. Um, Even know. during banding, like winter banding. So we banned black ducks uh, January through March. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's a, a year when it's really cold and everything freezes and the only thing open is the river, they have to go to the river. But if the sure. river freezes, then then we catch tons of ducks. Yeah. Because they have nowhere to go but our, our banding sites. How about that? But like the past two winters, it's been pretty warm. River had no ice on it. And we've had, you know, not... Yeah. Not terrible, but not really, really good banding numbers. So, it's very interesting. I'm I'm loving <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah, I mean it's just it's endless. I mean there's just because I I I knew so little at the beginning, I feel like I could just keep keep asking questions. We might have to do it part one and part two. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much time you got, Molly. Yeah. Uh -oh. <laughs> keep going. It's okay. <laughs> I mean we are we're at an hour and a half. Yeah, already went by pretty quick, but. uh are you on social media at all? Do you do you post anything? Like, is uh, is there any way anyone could follow along with you? Or I mean, the game commission has its own, yeah. uh, like Facebook and all that mm -hmm. Facebook page and all that stuff that we post things. Is on. there like a like an arm of the Pennsylvania Game Commission that's that does mostly waterfowl? Like, is there, or is that just all under PGC, like on their face Facebook? It's yeah, we just have one page okay. on there. So Very we did cool. post some stuff during goose banding. We had some pictures from goose banding on our yeah. Facebook page and cool. Well, I'll tag them in all this, and uh, <laughs> we'll we'll see where it goes from there.
right. Yeah, I'm ru- I'm running low on on questions to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I give give me five minutes and I'll come up with a couple more. <laughs> but I think we, we we've we've kept you long enough, and we we can't tell you enough how much we appreciate you coming up and sitting and oh, talking no with us. Yeah. It's been really neat. Uh, never done yeah. anything like this before, so. Well, maybe we'll have yeah. you on, have you do it again. <laughs> I'm sure we can. Cool. We can do a part two now that I know you're you're, you're duck banding and dove banding. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot more yeah. well, Plus, things we can look into Plus, there's all kinds of spring researching. surveys yeah. that mm-hmm. we didn't really even touch on, so, yeah. Definitely, then. Yeah. Definitely part two. <laughs> but we appreciate you coming on. Oh, no Thank problem. you again. And uh, I guess we'll see them in the next episode. What is that? <laughs> We're on 13. We're, We're on 13, so that'll be 14. That'll be 14. We've got to write this down somewhere yeah. or something. So you think we'd be easier. prepared for this kind of thing by now. <laughs> anyway. happy. Thank you, everyone, for listening and tuning in. And if you like the podcast, remember to subscribe and uh, give us a review and a rating. And we'd appreciate it. And we will see you next time. Good deal. Go ahead. Yeah.